Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. This week, in the months before his death, the writer Stephen Crane and his common-law wife, Cora, hosted a Christmas holiday celebration at a home they had rented in Sussex, England. The party reportedly lasted several days and was attended by Joseph Conrad, Henry James, and H.G. Wells, among others. That was apparently how Stephen and Cora rolled. Crane was only 28 years old when he died from tuberculosis in 1900, but had packed a wealth of writing and adventures into his short life. On the writing side, he produced short stories, novellas, poems, journalism, war reportage, and his most famous work, the novel The Red Badge of Courage. The novelist Paul Auster spent the last three years researching and writing about Crane for his biography, Burning Boy, The Life and Work of Stephen Crane. Auster is on a bit of a mission to resurrect Crane as a genius of American literature. As he shares stories, you hear a kind of awe for Crane's prodigious work and life, and perhaps a degree of wonder about what else Crane might have accomplished had he lived longer. In a recent event, Paul Oster discussed Burning Boy with poet, essayist, and critic Eric Lorber. The Elliott Bay Book Company presented their conversation on November 29, 2021. Here, Oster reads the opening passage. Born on the Day of the Dead, and dead five months before his 29th birthday, Stephen Crane lived five months and five days into the 20th century, undone by tuberculosis, before he had a chance to drive an automobile or see an airplane, to watch a film projected on a large screen or listen to a radio, a figure from the horse and buggy world who missed out on the future that was awaiting his peers, not just the construction of those miraculous machines and inventions, but the horrors of the age as well, including the destruction of tens of millions of lives in two world wars. His contemporaries were Henri Matisse, 22 months older than he was, Vladimir Lenin, 17 months older, Marcel Proust, four months older, and such American writers as W.E.B. Du Bois, Theodore Dreiser, Willa Cather, Gertrude Stein, Sherwood Anderson, and Robert Frost, all of whom carried on well into the new century. But Crane's work, which shunned the traditions of nearly everything that had come before him, was so radical for its time that he can be regarded now as the first American modernist, the man most responsible for changing the way we see the world through the lens of the written word. And then the next paragraph goes on for quite a while and in which I talk about Crane's family. Uh, he was born in Newark, New Jersey, as I was, but that's not why I wrote the book, certainly. Um, and he was the son of a Methodist minister and a devout Methodist mother. He was the last of 14 children, nine of whom survived. His father died when he was eight years old. And then I, I'll pick it up again here. 
After one disaffected and aborted year as, as a college student, a single semester at Lafayette, followed by another semester at Syracuse, where he played on the baseball team and registered for just one course, Crane headed back south to the twin destinations of Asbury Park and New York City, determined to make his way as a professional writer. He was not yet 20 years old. On September 28th, just blocks away from where Crane would soon be living in Manhattan, the unread and all but forgotten Herman Melville died. On November 10th, thousands of miles to the east in Marseille, France, Arthur Rimbaud died at the age of 37. 27 days after that, Crane's 64-year-old mother died of cancer. The newly orphaned budding writer had only eight and a half more years to live himself. But in that short time, he produced one masterpiece of a novel, The Red Badge of Courage, two boldly imagined and exquisite novellas, Maggie, A Girl of the Streets, and The Monster, close to three dozen stories of unimpeachable brilliance, among them The Open Boat and The Blue Hotel, two collections of some of the strangest, most savage poems of the 19th century, The Black Riders and War is Kind, and more than 200 pieces of journalism, many of them so good that they stand on equal footing with his literary work. A burning boy of rare precociousness who is blocked from entering the fullness of adulthood. He is America's answer to Keats and Shelley, to Schubert and Mozart. And if he continues to live on as they do, it is because his work has never grown old. 120 years after his death, Stephen Crane continues to burn. Then I go on to say that in spite of all that, uh, people tend not to be reading much Crane these days. He's kind of fallen off the map. Um, he's no longer uh, required reading in high school English classes. And therefore, many people simply don't know who he is anymore. And then I'm picking it up here. Um, if it had been otherwise, I never would have thought of writing this book. I come to it not as a specialist or a scholar, but as an old writer in awe of a young writer's genius. Having spent the past two years poring over every one of Crane's works, having read through every one of his published letters, having snatched up every piece of biographical information I could put my hands on, I find myself just as fascinated by Crane's frantic, contradictory life as by the work he left us. It was a weird and singular life, full of impulsive risks, an often pulverizing lack of money, and a pig-headed, intractable devotion to his calling as a writer, which flung him from one unlikely and perilous situation to the next. A controversial article written at 20 that disrupted the course of the 1892 presidential campaign. A public battle with the New York Police Department that effectively exiled him from the city in 1896. A shipwreck off the coast of Florida that led to his near drowning in 1897. A common law marriage to the proprietress of Jacksonville's most elegant body house, the Hotel de Dream. Work as a correspondent during the Spanish-American War in Cuba, where he repeatedly stood in the line of enemy fire. 
and then his final years in England, where Joseph Conrad was his closest friend and Henry James wept over his early death. And this writer, who is best known as a chronicler of war, embraced many other subjects as well, handling them all with immense skill and originality, from stories about young children and struggling Bohemian artists, to firsthand accounts of New York opium dens, conditions in a Pennsylvania coal mine, and a devastating drought in Nebraska. And much like Edgar Allan Poe, often mistakenly identified as nothing more than our dark browed purveyor of horror and mystery, when in fact he was a master humorist as well, the somber, pessimistic crane could be hilariously funny when he chose to be. And underneath the mountain of his prose, or perhaps on top of it, there are his poems, which few people in or out of the academy have ever known quite what to do with. Poems so far from the traditional norms of 19th century verse making, including the norm breaking deviations of Whitman and Dickinson, that they scarcely seem to count as poetry at all. And yet they stay in the mind more persistently than most other American poems I can think of. As for example, this one, which has continued to haunt me ever since I first read it more than five decades ago. In the desert, I saw a creature, naked, bestial, who, squatting upon the ground, held his heart in his hands and ate of it. I said, is it good, friend? It is bitter, bitter, he answered, but I like it because it is bitter and because it is my heart. Thank you, Paul. What a tremendous opening to a tremendous book. Uh, it's like an overture. I, uh, I, I just love uh, how you introduce so many uh, themes that over the next 700 or so pages you're going to um, approach in different ways. And I want to tell readers, especially those who might not have had a chance to get this book yet, uh, that in my mind, it's really three books in one. Uh, not only is it a, a, an account of uh, a remarkable life, as, as Rick said, a, a short one um, since Crane died at age 28, uh, but a very full one, which you uh, explore in detail. Uh, but it's also a study of the work and yeah. the, the, the thrill of being able to have one of our finest novelists unpack this work uh, uh, in this context uh, is extraordinary. And I just want to thank you for that. It's a, it's a moment, I think, in, in, uh, in, in, liter in, in literature. And finally, it's the latest Paul Oster book. It's, it's the <laughs> book he wrote after 4321, which was already a, a uh, uh, as Rick said, a, a surprise. And here comes this other tome that feels again like, uh, like a surprise and like something you were driven to do. So I, I wanna start there and talk a little bit about that drive. Um, how did you really decide to tackle a full-length biography of, of a major American writer. Well, I agree that it's a surprise. It was a surprise to me, too, that I, I found myself so absorbed in this work, in this life, that I, I wanted to spend a considerable amount of time working on it and writing about it. Um, after finishing 4321, which was in the spring of 2016, I believe, March, some early, early spring, 
um, I was really wiped out, uh, exhausted beyond measure. Um, remember writing the last sentence of the book, which I had been writing for three and a half years, seven days a week, pushing myself very, very hard. I remember I, I wrote the last sentence and I stood up from my chair and I, and I, I nearly fell on the ground. I, I was so exhausted. <laughs> and I remember how to cling to the wall so that I wouldn't smash my face on the, on the floor. Um, and I understood that I, I needed to take some time off that for the first time ever, really, I needed to take a considerable break and not think about writing fiction or writing anything and, and just breathe again. And, um, so I spent a lot of that time reading books, particularly books that I wanted to revisit or also books that I'd always meant to read and never gotten around to. And uh, at one point, um, sometime later that spring, maybe it was in the early summer, maybe it was June of, of 16, I was looking over my bookshelves and there I saw my Viking portable edition of Stephen Crane's work, which I had had for many, many years, but I hadn't looked at Crane in decades, decades. I probably, after high school, I might've read one or two other things by Crane and not thought about him at all. And I opened up this book and, and, and came upon a novella that I had never read not only had I not read it, I had never heard of it, uh, The Monster, something written in 1897, um, 60 pages or so. It was so powerful, so extraordinarily unexpected that uh, I, I realized that I, I had to go on reading more Crane, that I, I had been missing out on something really truly stupendous in American literature. I mean, just to tell about the monster for a second, I mean, it's a book in which um, the, the whole idea of black and white are, are really examined in, in ways that I don't think any writer had done. And I, I mean, even Mark Twain. Um, this, this, this is something extraordinary. And um, in which, in a sense, the, the, the black man is the, is the pivotal character in this story. He becomes the monster of this in this little town who um, he works for a white doctor who um, uh, as the uh, takes care of the horses and the carriage of, of the doctor and he lives lives on the premises of the household and um, uh, there's a fire that breaks out in the house while the doctor's away um, visiting patients and uh, the little six-year-old boy um, is trapped in the house and this man Henry Johnston goes in to save him, and he does save the boy, and in the process, um, he, he winds up in the doctor's laboratory, the chemicals explode, he's been knocked out, and he's unconscious on the floor, and the chemicals drip onto his face, and they burn off his face. He becomes a man with no face. Right. We talk about powerful metaphors, and um, the doctor, is so grateful to Henry for saving his son that he 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 links himself to uh, Henry's fate, and until the doctor is completely ostracized by everybody in town, until all he has left is Henry, and and 
it's it's really one of the greatest books, uh, and it's so pertinent for today. So I I I kept going through this collection, and everything I read was was great. It, it was it was marvelously uh, various and 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 powerful. Uh, so I then graduated to the Library of America edition, which is about thirteen or fourteen hundred pages. New treasures were uh, revealed to me. Um, I got so excited because I read every single thing in the Library of America uh, that I, I, I decided to invest in the collected works of Stephen Crane in 10 volumes, <laughs> so over 3,000 pages of work. Um, and then in the meantime, I started reading about Crane's life, which is some life, I'm telling you. It's, it's, it's 28 years, but he, he packs in more than most people managed to do in 70 or 80 years. Right. It was extraordinarily interesting. And um, so at some point, given this, this, this discovery I'd made and, and how little people were talking about Stephen Crane, I decided that I should write a book about Crane. I thought a nice little book. I actually thought 150, 200 pages, just something to show my appreciation. Well, one thing led to another, and it became this big, fat monster of a book. Um, but um, it really is, well, yes, of course, it's my newest book. So that's the third element. But for me, it's, it is two books. It's, it's telling the story of Crane's life, but also reading his work. Um, and, I, and I go into it at, at, in, in great detail, but not, I just want to say, not in a an academic way at all. I can't read academic criticism. It puts me to sleep. And what I tried to do was, I assumed that my reader would be someone who had not read a single word of Crane and barely knew who he was. On the other hand, I, I didn't have to reinvent the wheel. I knew that anyone who was gonna take the trouble to read this book already knew something about literature and was interested in it. So I didn't have to tell them who Mark Twain was and Herman Melville. But um, so I, I took for granted a certain kind of uh, basic literacy and interest, but at the same time, no knowledge of Crane's work. And I wanted to convey what it feels like to read this writer, a writer capable of writing such incredibly vivid sentences that, um, you barely know how to uh, to process them. Um, right, um, right. They're, they're like a gut punch often. And uh, I mean, uh, the, the range of them, you know, you know it's just the, the kind of sentence, uh, the one I keep coming back to because it's so startling. The woman's boatman had a face like a floor. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, you know, in Cuba uh, during the, the heat of the, uh, during the war in Cuba. Uh, against the Spanish, um, it was 100 degrees every day. It was just boiling. And, and more soldiers died of disease than of bullets, uh, many, many more. And fevers of, you know, malaria, yellow fever, everything. Well, the sky, I, the sky was bare and blue and hurt like brass. Uh, I, I just thought this is one of the great sentences. And then you think, hurt like brass. What does that mean? And the only thing I, I mean I can come up with is if you take a brass platter 
and you put it out in scorching sun, and then you touch that brass, it's really going to hurt. And I think that's what he was trying to convey. Hurt like brass. It's remarkable. Yeah, yeah. I hear the brass knuckles in it too. The sort of, yeah, sort of yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, violence that really is 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 part of his work so often. Um, but your passion is is so evident in the work, and I I, I do want to tell you that uh, you succeeded there in uh, in in creating a uh, a book in which you read the work non-academically, but, uh, but as, a, as a fan, as, a, as someone influenced by it. And, um, and that's a real treat for us to read over your shoulders like that. Um, so did you write the book chronologically? I mean, one, you know, sort of the art of a biographer uh, is a bit of a mystery to me because it is a, a pursuit that demands um, research, tenacity, uh, organization, uh, and yet uh, yours obviously also has the flair of a novelist and the sort of uh, the sense of invention is in it, even though it's all uh, obviously factually based. Uh, so how did you do it? Did you, did you, you know, give yourself deadlines? How did, how did it work? I don't know. No, I, I, I never, I, I don't know how long it's going to take me to do anything. <clears throat> um, um, I, I work by uh, paragraphs. This is, this is, for me, the unit of composition. Uh, I guess in poetry, the line is the, is the unit. Uh, in prose, it's the, it's the paragraph. And I've been saying this for years, and someone just told me the other day, and I hadn't been aware of this, that Gertrude Stein said, said the same thing. Um, so, and that's interesting. We have the same birthday, too, Gertrude Stein and I, so... We had the same um, aperçu about about how you write prose, um, but uh, so I just I just chug along. I've every book I've ever written, I start with the first sentence, and then I write the second sentence, and then the third, all the way to the end. I know there are writers who jump around. They have a passage in the middle they want to do first, and then the the book uh, radiates out of that core but not for me because I really don't know what I'm doing and I have to find it as I'm doing it. Yeah. Um, and it matters to me that if on page 12, whether it's a novel or, or, or a book like this, a nonfiction book, um, if I've referred to something, then when I get to page 163, I can, I can refer back to it in, in certain ways. And so I can't write 163 before 12, that's all. Right, interesting. Reading well, unfolds in time. It's sequential. Right. Yeah. So, so you, it's like music. You have to time everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I ask because especially when you revealed that you were contemplating a, sh a shorter um, burst uh, that might reveal your, your crane passion. Because um, it's interesting. There's, there's so many vignettes that sort of stand alone and, uh, uh, and have a kind of inner coherence as a narrative, uh, the Clark affair, for example, um, yes. and, uh, uh, which we should get to, but, uh, but let me, uh, let me ask you this. The other thing about crane that really comes through in this book, wow, is he the epitome of a starving artist, uh, but a driven one, like he is determined to be a writer, uh, yes. capital W. And, um, 
and 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 the sensibility at the time of writing, uh, of selling one's writing, of of making money, day by day, week by week, from the writing, um, really kind of extraordinary. And I just wondered if if you had any any uh, comments about that that thing. I mean, I'm not even sure if it exists in the same way anymore. But well, it does, but very rarely now. Um, I I think it's important to to say that. Crane was not the only struggling American writer of the 19th century, whether the early part or the middle part or the late part. Um, because um, I don't know, young people today might not understand that th no one taught writing, no one studied writing in colleges or high schools. There were no teachers of writing. This is the gig that writers usually are living off of these days. Mm -hmm. um, there were no grants, there were no foundations. There were no prizes. There were no nothing. There was there was nothing that you could no way to make any kind of money or find any kind of support outside of just earning it by publishing. On the other hand, this was the golden age of the newspaper. Yeah. The, the linotype machine that had been invented some years before, which enabled newspapers to run off a million copies a day in multiple editions. And um, up till then, you know, newspapers have been eight pages long. Now they could be any length. Uh, during Crane's days, living in New York, he was basically anchored in New York for five years until he had to leave. Um, um, there were 18 daily papers in New York City, 18. Wow. And 19 daily papers in foreign languages. So almost 40 daily papers. Newspapers were everything. There was no radio, there was no TV, there were no movies, no internet, nothing. It was reading was, was king then. And so there were a lot of opportunities for writers to work for newspapers in ways that don't exist today at all. Um, there, was, there was poetry published in newspapers. There was sh short stories were published in newspapers. And then there was something, a, a form that no longer exists. And this is the one that Crane excelled at. And all his great uh, so-called journalism was written in this form, which is the sketch. Mm. And the sketch combines both what we would call reportage and fiction. It's, it's a mix of the two. Um, uh, so it's, it, he, Crane never had to cite sources of anything. You know, I, I got my quote from Eric Lorber of Min Minneapolis because, uh, you know, he was an expert on the subject of um, um, small uh, magazines or something. No, no. He just tells you what he's seeing and he doesn't um, do the things that journalists are required to do today. Um, and I'm sure that in many of these wonderful pieces about New York City that he wrote, to, 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 to eat. I mean, he, he was cranking this stuff out. But a lot of it, as I say in the early pages there, is of very, very high quality. And I, I just wanted to, because <laughs> uh, it's such a lively piece of writing. And, um, oh, Hello. here it is. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's just, he's, he's, he's writing about, um, a, uh, a restaurant. It's called In a Park Row Restaurant. Park Row, still there in New York City. That's where all the newspapers were back, back in the day. 
Um, so it's, it's a crowded restaurant at lunchtime. Okay, I, I find this very, very funny. Okay, he, he, he says, uh, meanwhile, the, the waiters dashed about the room as if a monster pursued them and they saw it escape wildly through the walls. It was like the scattering and scampering of a lot of water bugs when one splashes the surface of the brook with a pebble. Withal, they carried incredible masses of dishes and threaded their swift ways with rare skill. Perspiration stood upon their foreheads and their mouths came strained and their breaths came strainedly. They served customers with such speed and violence that it often resembled a personal assault. <laughs> the crumbs from the previous diner were swept off with one fierce motion of a napkin. A waiter struck two blows at the table and left there a knife and a fork. And then came the viands in a volley, thumped down in haste, causing men to look sharp to see if their trousers were safe. <laughs> that, I mean, that's a funny paragraph. And it's just, he's yeah. bursting with this kind of energy throughout all, all, these, all, these, all these pieces. Yeah. But it's also true. the art of observation, um, that sort of uh, uh, something you show so well is that Crane seems to have a vast array of lenses, sometimes microscopes, sometimes telescopes, uh, but he seems able to observe anything in his ken. And um, it's, it's a, a, a testament to why, why he's such an extraordinary writer. I wanna talk about the poems too, because especially with your overture, as I call it, you-, you uh, I will, I just, one more, one oh, more yeah. little thing about, uh, this is from another piece. Um, He's just describing, um, you know, the street. Two rivers of people swarmed along the sidewalks, spattered with black mud, which made each shoe leave a scar-like impression. Overhead, elevated trains with a shrill grinding of the wheels stopped at the station, upon which stopped at the station, which, upon its leg-like pillars, seemed to resemble some monstrous kind of crab squatting over the street. I've never read a better description of an elevated train, you know, than that. A monstrous kind of crab squatting over the street. So right. this right. is the vivid the vividness of, of his writing. It's all so tactile all the time. Yeah. Um, but and the as strangeness, a, really, it's, it's, a, it's a strange image. Um, it's strange, it's, but yeah. everything about Crane is a little strange. It, yeah. it doesn't sound like anybody else. And you have to get used to him, but you never can because he's surprising you all the time. Um, yeah. But you wanted to talk about the poems, and I'm, I'm more oh, than happy to do yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, as you mentioned, uh, he writes these two extraordinary volumes uh, of, of poetry, um, uh, one a little toward the, the end of his life. He uh, referred to his poems as pills. Yes. Uh, which I, lines, lines or pills. Yes. Uh, it was kind of an extraordinary, uh, again, a strange medicalized term or something. Right. Uh, but I've always thought he's, he's a, a tremendous uh, poet. The uh, Berryman was a huge fan and probably introduced uh, or reintroduced many people uh, to Crane's poetry. But why isn't mm. Why isn't, you know, why does Red Badge of Courage get all the spotlight? Why isn't Crane better uh, read still as a poet? Well, actually, I think he is. At least um, a lot of my poet friends 
are very big fans of Crane's oh, work. Oh, good. <laughs> American poets. Um, uh, again and again, I'm, I'm talking to poets and writers, uh, every, everyone from Charles Bernstein to Michael Andache say that, you know, they love Stephen Crane's poetry. And, um, and I can't think of two writers more different than Charles and Michael. So, so <laughs> they both, they both, they both love him. Um, and it is astonishing work and um, it doesn't sound like anything else. And it remains fresh today because it's so spare. Uh, there are none of the flourishes that, you know, we find so tedious now. Um, it's, it's, it is, the poems are really like punches. Um, I, I was, Absolutely. And the prose is so often really like poetry. I mean, I think it's probably even taught as, as or considered prose poetry in a sense. Although again, uh, things like the open boat, how do you define that, that genre? You, you actually can't, I believe it's your invention. You call it a documentary fable. Yes, that's right. That was the term I, I came up with. Well, because it's based on a real experience, um, that shipwreck. Uh, the shipwreck, uh, it, that, well, let's, let's talk a little bit about Crane's life here because it is so fascinating. So he, he winds up in New York uh, after dropping out of college. He's scrounging around, writing articles for $15 a pop when he can get Get, get an assignment. The, fr the first year was really tough, but he wrote his first novella, Maggie, A Girl of the Streets. He published it with the inheritance that he got from his mother after she died. Um, no, because no publisher would touch it. It's a book about the slums. It's a book about a girl who falls into prostitution and uh, a shocking book at the time. Um, and, uh, so, but you know, he's 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 living along there, writing stories, writing writing um, journalism, and um, then eventually, uh, a little later, he's, he writes the Red Badge of Courage, and he's. It takes a long time before anybody pays attention. It's rejected by a number of publishers, and then someone said he liked it, he wanted it, and he held on to it for six months because he didn't have the money to publish it. Crane was starving. He really was down to one meal a day if he was lucky. He didn't, there was a period when he didn't even have shoes. He was walking around in rubber boots. Um, and um, But eventually, um, the Red Badge of Courage was picked up by a publisher, and it became, to Crane's immense surprise, an enormous hit. It had, it came out in the fall of 1895. So there were, and there were two more printings after that in 1895, 1896, there were 14 more printings of the book. Mm -hmm. And it was even more popular or just as popular in England. Where you really surprised though, because I, I got the feeling from your book that he was trying, he was, you know, shooting for the goal. He was trying to write a, a popular book. Yes, but but he he ditched that version. You know, he said, "I want to write a pot boiler and make some money," and then he threw it all out. And he said, "I." I he told his friend, I, "I couldn't do that. I just had to do it my way. I had to do it the way I had okay. to do it." And so, no, no, he he was not expecting big success. Of course, like every writer is hoping for it, but he's certainly not counting on it. Um, right. um and so. Um, 
he still nevertheless signed a very bad contract for for that book and he had no uh, royalties from England. He had signed away all the foreign rights and it was stupid. So he wasn't making a lot of money even from his big success. And so he had to go back to journalism and William Randolph Hearst, who ran the New York Journal and, and Joseph Pulitzer of the world. I mean, these are the two big um, newspapers, the biggest, each right. one a million copies a day, uh, you know, in the so-called yellow journalism wars of the, of the period. And Crane worked for both of them alternately throughout mo most of his life. Anyway, Hearst uh, engaged him to write a series of articles about the neighborhood in New York called the Tenderloin, which is kind of the naughty neighborhood of, of and, and Crane had a real passion for low life. And he was very intrigued by all these characters, the prostitutes, the gamblers, the thieves, the, the drug addicts, the, this is, this is the milieu he, he, he was most interested in, in, in New York. Um, and so he was, uh, one night he was interviewing two showgirls late, late, late at night, two in the morning. And um, a, a prostitute friend of one of the girls came and said hi, and they all walked out. And Crane put one of, one of the girls on a uh, cable car. And he saw a cop, plainclothes cop, jump out of the shadows and arrest this woman, this prostitute for soliciting when not, there had been no men walking by. Turned out, you know, the police were after this, this young, beautiful woman. Um, and Crane defended her in court. And because um, she sued the cop for a false arrest. And um, the police, which they were run. It's interesting. The commissioner of police was Theodore Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. um, who was a friend of Crane's and a great admirer of his work. And he told Crane, don't get involved with this. You know, it's none of your business. And Crane felt that it was, his honor was at stake to stand up for someone who had been unjustly accused. And um, the police ransacked his apartment while he was gone. They stalked him, they hounded him. And they dug up every dirty, nasty thing they could about him, such as the fact that he had been shacked up with a, a, a sometime prostitute that earlier that summer, uh, a few months earlier. And um, uh, they, kind of, they destroyed his reputation. And life became so uncomfortable for him that he had to leave New York. So he got a job with one of the newspaper syndicates to go to Cuba and uh, cover the, uh, the revolution that was growing against the Spanish. This is before America was involved in the war. The jumping off point was Florida, Jacksonville. He went to Jacksonville and these ships were illegal and it took, he, had, he was stuck there for a month, during which time he fell in love with Cora Taylor who became his common-law wife, and um, and they lived together for the rest of Crane's life, um, and um, finally got on the ship. It was New Year's Eve, 1896, going into 1897, and they set off for Cuba, and the and the ship, the small ship, sank. Seven of the twenty people were drowned. 
Crane wound up in a, in a rowboat, a dinghy, with the captain and two other crew members, 10 feet long, in a very howling, you know, winter sea. Even though it was Florida, it was rough and choppy, and they thought they were going to be submerged every second. They couldn't get ashore. For 30 hours, they, they, they were rowing, but they couldn't make it in. And they, you know, they were in danger of being drifting far out to sea. And so they had to keep rowing just to stay in place. Um, out of this experience came the open boat, um, which is one of Crane's most remarkable stories. Uh, one of the great American stories, period. It's about 30 pages long. And he, and he, and he describes it as a tale told after the fact. That's, that's the subtitle, <laughs> the open boat. And um, so it combines the, the fact of what happened to him, but he doesn't tell it in the first person. He is simply the correspondent. There's the correspondent, the captain, the cook, and the oiler. And there's four men on, 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 in the boat. Um, I think this experience changed Crane. Uh, he felt a kind of human solidarity in that boat where all four of them were pulling together you know, to stay alive. There was absolute trust. And, and, and Crane, who says, you know, who had always been taught, you know, the correspondent who had always been taught to be skeptical of men, uh, you know, changed. And he understood that there was something else that, that was possible about human connections. Um, it's, it's amazing. One, and, oh, go ahead. No, it just, and one of the four actually did die. The, the oiler, the, the stoutest, the most brave, the one who worked the hardest, was uh, hit on the head by the boat as they were swimming it at the end and, and drowned. Um, and I think Crane was haunted by this all his life. And when he was dying, he was raving in, you know, fever dreams and talking about the, the, the boat. And, and the men in the boat that he, he had been with. Uh, absolutely, yeah. He, he converts the trauma, though, into something uh, uh, universal, for lack of a better word, mythic, uh, uh, existential even. There's that, that sort of um, uh, this and the Blue Hotel seem sort of like uh, no exit or, or Beckett years before. Absolutely. Uh, I, I, uh, absolutely. And so pertinent to our time in which isolation is you know, a, new, a, a, a burden for so many now. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, how, how he puts this in the language, how could, and how could your life not be changed? But I, but I think, and you get to this too in the Blue Hotel where uh, the moral imperative, the, the, the fact that, uh, it, yes, when you're, when you're trapped with other people, uh, in a in a, a life or death situation, uh, there is right and wrong, uh, and um, it seems to me that that's a strand in the proto modernism uh, uh, and his view of the world that is that is going in there. Well, I agree. You see, here he was, you know, the son of a Methodist minister. He turned against the Christian uh, orthodoxy of of his of of his family. Um, and I think his position finally is, it's very close to what we would call an existentialist position. And some of his observations and um, uh, stance 
human stance is similar to Camus, I think. Um, th there's, a, there's a real resemblance. Uh, of course, Crane didn't have a name for it then. There was no word for this, this stance, but it's a world of, in which the gods have vanished. It's a world in which uh, it is clear that men don't count for anything in the cosmic picture. Uh, nature is not so much a malignant force, uh, but it's not a benevolent force either. It's just indifferent. It's indifferent to human beings. And um, and how do we how do we make meaning out of our lives under these conditions? And I think um, that's that's what all his greatest work is about. It's also you know interesting to note that the 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 greatest of Crane's works are usually about people in extreme situations. Uh, and that's why it doesn't get old, you see. Uh, whether he's writing about war or just people in physical danger or people in situations of extreme poverty, it, it, these things, they don't change. That's why you can read him now and feel that you're reading something contemporary. Um, yeah. He, well, I think your book is really going to, bring a lot of readers to him now. And I'm, I'm pretty elated so. about that. I hope so. That was really my purpose is to, is to get people to read him. But yeah. I should also say in the last year of his life, he wrote some of the best stories about children I've ever read in my life. Oh. Uh, this is the last cycle he did. The Willemville stories. That's the imaginary town he, he invented. And um, I would recommend that everyone read his new mittens. <laughs> it's really one of the great stories about uh, boyhood, I think, ever, ever, ever done. Um, and no one knows it, but right. please read it. Please read it. It's, it's, it's remarkable. Yeah, Crane, yeah. nobody knows. It's yeah. going to be a pleasure to, to uh, for a lot of us to spend some of the winter with him. Paul, before we leave, I want to get to a few of these audience questions. Okay. Um, and uh, one is about lineage. Uh, do you perceive lineage uh, in Crane's work, they're asking specifically: Do you have do you have a particular impression of Crane's work on Berryman's poetry or or people like that? Yeah. Well, I I would say that um, um, the imagists certainly looked 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 to Crane. A Amy Lowell, for example, um, they, I think Berryman looked at Crane as the the middle um, the sort of the only decent poet between. Whitman and 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 Pound. I, I I think that's pretty much how how he thought about it. Um, or you know the the 20th century modernists, Pound being the most representative. Um, but I think I think Crane's great impact is on uh, prose writers. Uh, there's no Hemingway without Crane, um, and and Hemingway most certainly did read Crane. And admire him tremendously. He did say in some 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 place, I think it was the Green Hills of Africa. The three greatest writer American writers are Mark Twain, Henry James, and Stephen Crane, and not necessarily in that order. And <laughs> and um, uh, and we do know that Stephen Crane knew Hemingway's mother briefly in New York, where she was. Uh, trying to become an opera singer, and they traveled in the same circles. Not a lot is known about their connection, but it is interesting that her name was Grace Hall, and the heroine of the one sort of um, uh, 
a love story Crane wrote, a little no no novel called The Third Violet. The heroine's name is Grace Fanhall. Grace Hall, Grace Fanhall. It can't be a coincidence if he right. knew Grace Hall. So anyway, Hemingway's mother did read to Hemingway as a boy those stories about children, for example. And um, uh, you can see in some of Crane's uh, the spareness of some of the later writing where, where Hemingway got, got it. And, um, and he had a big impact on all kinds of people in that, in that early 20th century period. Um, and it, three lines of Crane's poems, however, is this is very interesting, um, became titles of novels. Uh, in a lonely place, in a lonely place, which is a, a, a kind of a, a detective, well, thriller, crime novel, um, which was turned into a great movie with Humphrey Bogart, right, directed by Nicholas Ray, In a Lonely Place. Then there's Find a Victim by Ross MacDonald, another crime novel, which is from the poem. And then uh, Joyce Carol Oates' more recent um, because it is bitter and because it is my heart from the poem I read from. Right. That's three that I know of. There might, there might even be more. Um, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, another qu person is asking, uh, and this is interesting because you were talking about reading, reading uh, Crane's work and feeling driven to do this, but uh, how much about his life had you known before you uh, did this? Had you, had you read about his life? Not much, no, no, I didn't know very much at all. I knew he had worked as a newspaper man and I knew he had you know, been a war correspondent, but I didn't, I didn't know too much. I, I just started reading whatever was available and, um, um, and, and learned that way. Um, you see the thing, Berryman did write a book about Crane and it's very interesting in 1950. But the problem with Crane biography is that the first one ever written was done by a man named Thomas Beer, and it was published in 1923. And Beer loved Crane's work, and he wanted to write a, a real biography, but he couldn't get enough information. So he made up half of it. He just made up people that had never existed. He wrote letters that these non-existent people had supposedly written. And it was such a muddle, and there was no one really to contradict him. So when Berryman wrote the second biography, you know, 20 something years later, he repeated a lot of Beer's uh, yeah. stories that, that weren't founded on truth. And also engages in some very crude Freudian uh, interpretations of Crane, which are absurd. But uh, Berryman's fun to read just because he's such a confident prose writer. And, um, and some of the things he says about the poems are, 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 are terrific and, and some of the prose as well. So, um, yeah. Well, uh, I can't believe our time is up. There's so much, uh, we haven't touched on. Um, one thing I'll throw out that readers should be on the lookout for is, uh, late in life, Crane's friendship with Joseph Conrad and, and Henry James, uh, you write so beautifully about that. And, um, uh, and, and again, uh, in all aspects, uh, this is a wonderful book, Paul. It's, uh, a, again, a surprise, but a thrill to have it be the latest uh, Paul Oster book. And um, 
Yeah, I just uh, uh, thank you and congratulate you. And it, it, it raced by so quickly. I thought we were just clearing our throats, but I see it is, <laughs> it is the top of the hour now. So it's incredible. It is. Here's Rick from Elliott Bay. He's, he's been here all the while. I just think uh, we're we're the adjourning to, for a place to have a drink would be afterwards. As we, I think, as everyone, uh, Eric's probably gotten to do with you, Paul, as I've had the good fortune to do. Also, I was going to say one other recent um, trace of Crane, I have a feeling um, Bob Dylan mines a lot of 19th century writing and um, cultural pieces. And he uh, he has in his last album last year, a song called Black Rider. Oh, um, well. That's... And it's quite, you know, it's it's that kind of, it's kind of speaks to and from certain places that there's some resonance there. Anyway, just that's, um, this has been great, both of you. And um, I do wish there was... Um, the going out afterwards and we'll have to take that up in our ways when we can. Um, and this really is a tremendous book and both um, what Paul himself has done with it and where um, it sends us also to Stephen Crane's work. And Eric, thank you very much for being part of this and doing, do, uh, having the fun that is talking with Paul. I mean, that it can go on. I've never, it's like, yeah, wait, wait it's early. It's only night. It's only uh, 10 o'clock in New York. Um, that's right. That's right. Well, I'm waiting for you to come. Ring the doorbell, Rick, and okay. I'll get you out. We'll have a chance. It'll, it'll happen. It'll happen. I'll, please, I know my way around Brooklyn. Um, and Eric, good luck with everything there in Minneapolis and with Rain Taxi. Thank um, you. And the Twin Cities. When is that? When does that festival happen? Uh, we just concluded our twenty twenty okay. first festival. Yeah. So uh, every fall, um, it's and, a fall. Okay. Yeah. Uh, some virtual or some in person or what? Uh, we did a hybrid this year. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, well yeah, thanks. And yeah, you're in a great book city and um, well, we have some friends I can tell in here. We're in here from Minneapolis tonight watching too. So thank you again, both of you, um, Paul, take care. And um, too, Rick. I don't know thank what you. you're going to surprise us with next. Cause um, <laughs> after four, three, two, one, I guess I would have thought something little and small and kind of like <laughs> a, cha a changing the palette and kind of a thing instead. Woof, this. Um, I, I really want to go small now. I'm telling you, <laughs> it's going to be small. <laughs> anyway. Um, and get our best for Siri who's fit. Well, say her whole name. So everyone you know, knows who we're talking about and her new book and, um, everything else and take care Great. everyone. Um, thank you. And um, come get this book, Burning Boy. Thank Burning you. Boy. Okay, everyone. <laughs> Adios. Yeah. Buenas noches. The Elliott Bay Book Company presented this conversation with Paul Oster and Eric Lorber on November 29th, 2021. To find the full event, and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuow.org speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.